Hi, everybody. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is part 12 of There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. Tonight, we cover chapters 15, 16, and 17 of The Hobbit. We reach, if not the emotional climax of the book, then at least the dramatic climax of the book. Tonight will carry us all the way to the Battle of Five Armies, which is enormous, is pivotal, and is really the fullest manifestation of the shift in tone that we've observed over the last few sessions of There and Back Again. We've talked a little about the ways in which The Hobbit has, well, to borrow Tolkien's own phrase from when he was writing The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit has left children behind. It has become a grander and more somber epic-level narrative than it was in its opening chapters, really in the first two-thirds of the book. Tonight, we see the fullest manifestation of that, the fullest measure of that, and we also see Bilbo's greatest act of selflessness, certainly, his greatest act of heroism, and it may even be argued his greatest achievement as a burglar. We'll get to all of that in due course. You can leave questions and make comments here in the chat uh, alongside the YouTube video, or you can catch up with me on Twitter using the hashtag TAB again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. There are, of course, a lot of you, a lot of us. So forgive me if I miss anything. Forgive me if anything slips past my, my eagle-like gaze as we proceed this evening. There's a lot of ground to cover, actually, in these three chapters. And I should say, too, I inadvertently said at the end of the last session that we would only cover two chapters tonight, that I was wrong, the schedule was right, we're going to cover all three. So I will insert a little natural pause before we get to the Battle of Five Armies. And if any of you haven't yet caught up with the reading, you can stop the podcast, stop the live feed right there, go read that chapter and then come back. It'll all be fine. It'll all be fine. You guys, we'll get through it all. I see so many familiar faces here tonight. This is just just wonderful to have you all here with me. It's, it is, as I see a, a bunch of you, uh, as I see a bunch of you saying here, um, it, it's just a really interesting and engaging uh, reading tonight. The, the, the arc, because of course the, the reading, the, the readings that we select, the way that I break up the chapters for The Hobbit and the way that I will break up the chapters for The Lord of the Rings is, is more a function of logistics than it is of any kind of narrative consistency. But tonight is really rewarding because we get the gathering storm, then we get the thief in the night, then we get the breaking of that storm, narratively speaking, and we get this, this descent into finally catastrophe, and then Bilbo's suspension from the narrative as he's knocked unconscious right at the end. Minor spoilers, I guess, for the third chapter in tonight's reading. And then we'll pick up next week with, with a, a full and complete resolution, uh, a restoration of sorts. Next week's reading is also going to be just spectacular. I'm saying next week's reading. I'm going to preempt my usual format here and talk a little about the next reading that we're going to be doing because the next reading that we do will be the last reading of The Hobbit. That will be chapters 18 and 19 that will carry us all the way to the end of the book. And you won't have to wait a whole week to get there because I'm going to hold that session this coming Sunday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern. That is Sunday the, I don't have the date in front of me, Sunday the 9th of April is when it will take place at 9 p.m. Eastern. That'll cover the last two chapters. And that will leave us with 13 episodes in which we discuss The Hobbit. Or I guess 13 episodes since the start of There and Back Again. But either way, it seems like an inopportune number. So what I think I'm going to do is perhaps uh, take a week off after that, then maybe run a Q&A session for The Hobbit, where we can talk about some of the, the greater themes. Talk about really the book as a whole before we push into the first reading of The Fellowship of the Ring. So we might just linger with The Hobbit a little more. And I know that I've promised some uh, Patreon-exclusive Silmarillion-oriented seminars. 
I think I will talk about the Quest of Erebor probably in that Q&A session. We'll, we'll, we'll open that up to everyone. There will still be patron-exclusive optional seminars coming along too, but I just reread the Quest of Erebor, and, and I really do think it's worth discussing here in this, this somewhat more open format. So we will definitely get to that, but I think it's going to be Sunday, and then I'll take a week off, and then we'll come back for that Q&A before I start the Fellowship of the Rain. That's how that whole thing is going to play out. Let me catch up with the Twitter chat, which is fearsome tonight. You're, you're awfully chatty tonight. Yes, good, good. <laughs> there are a few more books in the series. Yes, there are just, just a few more. Yes. We, we do dream of eggs and bacon tonight. Yes, Bilbo proves himself, um, well, if not immune, proves himself stronger than Thranduil, stronger than Bard, stronger certainly than Thorin, in that he can resist the lure of the dragon sickness. And we did talk about that a little bit last week. We're going to move into, into Bilbo's encounter with, with Bard and Thranduil, and we're going to see him there exhibit a perfect synthesis, a nigh-perfect synthesis of his Baggins and Took qualities. So we'll, we'll get to all of that as we move into the, uh, into the second chapter of tonight's reading. Yes, good. Good. Excellent. All right. Let's get into it then with uh, chapter 15, A Gathering of the Clouds as War Descends Upon the Lonely Mountain. And we're going to begin with the very first chapter, the very first uh, passage, in fact, in this chapter. And here it is. Now we will return to Bilbo and the dwarves. All night one of them had watched, but when morning came they had not heard or seen any sign of danger. But ever more thickly the birds were gathering. Their companies came flying from the south, and the crows that still lived above the mountain were wheeling and crying unceasingly above. Something strange is happening, said Thorin. The time has gone for autumn wanderings, and these are birds that dwell always in the land. There are starlings and flocks of finches, and far off there are many carrion birds, as if a battle were afoot. Suddenly Bilba pointed. There's that old thrush again, he cried. He seems to have escaped when Smaug smashed the mountainside, but... I don't suppose the snails have. So here we see the return of the birds to the Lonely Mountain. And certainly something has stirred their essential nature. Certainly something has summoned them back. The death of Smaug has had unforeseen circumstances. And all of this really is, is serving as an introduction to the coming of Ruach the Raven, who we'll discuss in, in just a few minutes. But even here we see that Thorin is connected now to his kingdom. The full manifestation of his dragon sickness is not yet upon him because he does not know yet that the dragon is dead. He does not know that the horde contained within the Lonely Mountain is uncontested. And once again, I think we see just a beautiful parallel here between uh, between uh, Thorin and Bilbo in that Thorin observes the great movement of these these flocks of birds. He, he sees the, the biggest possible picture whereas Bilbo identifies one solitary bird. Bilbo's focus on incidental detail, once again, is suggestive of his somewhat exceptional nature, his, his ability to unify those two impulses within him, the adventuresome and the domestic, the took and the baggins. Yeah. Um, let me see. My windows are all awry. My windows are all awry. Yes, snails are, why the, snails are why the thrush knocked, says Lauren. Yes, absolutely. That was the, uh, oh, as Chesley is asking, why snails? Yes, uh, this is a callback to the knocking of the thrush, which uh, heralded the opening of the secret door. That was the prophecy that was inscribed in moon letters upon uh, Thorin's map in the first place. So Bilbo is calling out there. And I'm not sure that there's a greater significance there to, um, to calling out that incidental detail. I, I hadn't really thought about it, honestly. Um, hmm. 
I think the survival of the birds is significant in that, in part, the birds can be tied thematically back to Smaug in a way that the snails can't, for example. That the birds are capable of escaping, are, are capable of lifting themselves free of the, the concerns and constraints of, of the surface of the earth, whereas the snails, of course, are heedless, are witless, and, and cannot escape even if they wanted to. So I think there's, there's an interesting dichotomy there that we could probably explore, but yes, I think, that's the, uh, I think that's the heart of that. Tolkien and birds, says Jackie Boatman. Yes, Tolkien and birds. We will have some opportunities to discuss Tolkien and birds as we move through the Lord of the Rings. Yes, good. Uh, Gene says, I'm, I'm really curious about the crow versus raven hate. I've always thought ravens were a sort of more malicious and ominous bird. This ties directly back into, uh, into fairy tale mythology. This ties directly back to, to very old, very early notions of, um, of the purpose and the role of birds, the symbolism of birds, I guess you can say. Crows are commonplace and are, are malicious and in a mundane kind of, kind of way. They're just, they're, they're mean-spirited birds. But ravens, possessed of that keen intelligence, possessed of that acute, and, and crucial here too, ravens are notoriously acquisitive, at least in mythology, at least in fiction. And here we have a dragon horde, and here we have the, the flourishing, the, the disabling dragon sickness coming over Thorin, and to a certain degree coming over the other dwarves too, to a certain degree too coming over Bard and Thranduil as well. And here we have a raven that serves as the voice of caution, that gives good counsel, even when he does not call this counsel wise. Yeah, good. As It Don't Connect says, birds tend to serve very significant roles in Tolkien's books. Yes, certainly when we, uh, when we move into The Lord of the Rings, that will be true. Yeah. Emily says, I know this is dumb, but when I first read The Hobbit, I thought the thrush was going to turn out to be Gandalf, like he could transform. I don't hate that, actually, Emily. I don't hate that as a piece of, specula as a piece of speculation. Um, I, I could see how that would fit, certainly, and, and doesn't necessarily break the kind of tonal frame that Tolkien has established. Certainly, in terms of the references that he is making to older myths and to fairy tales, that would perhaps be consistent. So I, I can see exactly why you thought that might be the case. Yes, that's fascinating. Good. Good. Um, let me see. Trying to scroll down. No, I, you guys are just, you, you're so conversational tonight. I adore it. I adore it. Yes. Kate says, crows are really smart. Last year's babies will help raise this year's babies. Yes, this is absolutely, um, this is absolutely the case. Crows are also very intelligent. I, I'm not talking about real-life crows versus real-life ravens. I'm talking about their, their mythological aspects and their, their innate symbolism. Yes, good. Um, yes, Librarian Val says uh, on Twitter, Tolkien and birds, Outlander and birds, it's all birds and I know nothing. I know it's, it's, it's odd that these two books that I happen to, or, or these two series, I guess, that I happen to have discussed in such close proximity also feature very prominent, uh, very prominent use of birds as, hmm, as metaphors for the internal emotional state of the characters. That's certainly true for Tolkien. It's extremely true for Diana Gabaldon in at least the first couple of books of the Outlander series. That kind of wanes a little. The first book is stuffed full of that kind of symbolism. But... Tolkien also takes it further. He uses birds in a more broadly metaphorical sense. He will use birds to communicate points of uh, thematic import, almost points of theological import at certain points in The Lord of the Rings. So certainly that's, that's going to be worth keeping track of as we move into that book within the next couple of weeks. Yes. And of course, Gene's calling out here Nordic ravens too. Yes, that's the, uh, yes, good, good. That's the, yes, yes. 
Uh, also true, says Jean, I didn't even think of the significance of ravens in the, Nord the Nordic folklore that Tolkien was most influenced by. Yes, certainly. That's the, uh, that's the direct link there. Yes. Good. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Kate says, I was just thinking back to Birdsong and Outlander. Great minds and all that. Fantastic. Yes. If you haven't heard the Outlander seminar series, you can go and find that over on storywonk.com as a part of the Scott and the Sassanach podcast. I discussed in some detail and depth Outlander, the first of Diana Gabaldon's time travel romance stories, and then uh, Dragonfly and Amber, the second two. And, oh, I guess... And I have since discussed the third book in that series, Voyager. So there's a lot of material out there if you're in the mood for that kind of storytelling. All right. So that's our, our kind of, that's, that's priming the pump. That is setting us up for the return of the birds and also the special significance of birds. We're drawing attention to the birds so that we will be somewhat more on board, somewhat more engaged by the appearance of a character who is, for many people, one of the best characters in the book. This is the, uh, this is the appearance of Roak the Raven. O Thorin, son of Thrain, and Balin, son of Fundin, he croaked, and Bilbo could understand what he said, for he used ordinary language and not bird speech. I am Roak, son of Kark. Kark is dead, but he was well known to you once. It is a hundred years and three and fifty since I came out of the egg, but I do not forget what my father told me. Now I am the chief of the great ravens of the mountain. We are few, but we remember still the king that was of old. Most of my people are abroad, for there are great tidings in the south. Some are tidings of joy to you, and some you will not think so good. Behold, the birds are gathering back again to the mountain and to dale from south and east and west, for word has gone out that Smaug is dead. Dead, dead, shouted the dwarves. Dead! Then we have been in needless fear and the treasure is ours. They all sprang up and began to caper about for joy. Yes, dead, said Roak. The thrush, may his feathers never fall, saw him die, and we may trust his words. He saw him fall in battle with the men of Esgoroth, the third night back from now at the rising of the moon. Here, at last, we learn the truth of the death of Smaug, and this is a significant turning point in the characterization of Thorin Oakenshield. We'll get to that in just one moment. The return of the ravens is, of course, significant. Ravens as repositories of knowledge and repositories of wisdom and of witnesses. That is certainly a traditional mythological role for ravens to observers and spies and witnesses. These are, these are, are very closely connected to the, the symbolism of ravens in this type of story. So in the broadest possible sense, the return works out rather well. But here, Roak is used to much greater and more specific effect than that, because he specifically ties back to the fall of Erebor. And as we discussed last time, as we must struggle to remember sometimes, the dwarves themselves remember the fall of Erebor. They were here. This is a primal and personal connection with the, the old dwarven kingdom. Though all of this time has passed, though all of Smaug's devastation has, has scoured the earth around the Lonely Mountain, now we are seeing already the return, the re-emergence of life. And we're seeing, in the return of the ravens specifically, I think, a step toward the restoration of a status quo. The ravens and the dwarves coexisted alongside one another here in Erebor. They were, they were companionable. And this is like the first the first gesture toward what we will come to think of as the old alliance, what we will come to think of as the unity between the dwarves of the mountain and the men of Dale and the elves of the wood, that, that these, 
three communities, these three cultures coexisted in a mutually profitable fashion. We're about to see that splinter and we're about to see that falter, but the return of the ravens is the first kind of gesture of hope toward that. This is the moment when, as I said, things turn and Thorin begins to direct events much more personally, much more directly. Yes. Um, yes, Chesley says, Balin seems a lot more important now that Raven feels necessary to use Balin's lineage. Yes, good, good. That's an excellent, that's an excellent observation. Yes, good. Um, Yes, a couple of comments here about uh, about uh, capering for joy, which is a very uh, I'm reminded of uh, of Bayorn's reference to the dwarves as a comedic troupe, and I, I can completely see that sometimes, even here this late in the book, when things have become quite so somber and quite so grim, um, it is a, a rather charming mental image. Yes, good. Yes, all right. Let's, uh, because this, of course, too, is, is simply preparatory. We have the birds first and then Roak delivering the news, which is great. But then we get our turn. And here it is. Your own wisdom must decide your course, but 13 is small remnant of the great folk of Durin that once dwelt here and now are scattered far. If you will listen to my counsel, you will not trust the master of the lake men, but rather him that shot the dragon with his bow. Bard is he, of the race of Dale, of the line of Gideon. He is a grim man, but true. We would see peace once more among dwarves and men and elves after the long desolation, but it may cost you dear in gold. I have spoken. Then Thorin burst forth in anger. Our thanks, Roek Kark's son. You and your people shall not be forgotten, but none of our gold shall thieves take or the violent carry off while we are alive. If you would earn our thanks still more, bring us news of any that draw near. Also, I would beg of you, if any of you are still young and strong of wing, that you would send messengers to our king in the mountains of the north, excuse me, messengers to our kin in the mountains of the north, both west from here and east, and tell them of our plight. But go specially to my cousin Dane in the Iron Hills, for he has many people well armed and dwells nearest to this place. Bid him hasten. I will not say if this counsel be good or bad, croaked Rock but I will do what can be done. Then off he slowly flew. This is the moment where Thorin breaks the narrative. This is not how this story is supposed to go. What's supposed to happen in fairy tales is that the stalwart hero slays the dragon and then peace and joy and prosperity descend upon the land. This is a fundamental breaking point in the narrative of The Hobbit. We are about to shift simultaneously, I guess, into a much grander tone, a much more dramatic tone, but also into something much more personal, much more almost melodramatic for Thorin himself. He has been afflicted by the dragon sickness. He will not yield his gold. And we have seen throughout the book, in, in multiple instances, how important that generosity is. The generous king shares his wealth and creates peace and prosperity. The selfish king hoards his gold and brings death and devastation upon his own people and on those people around him. And we have to try and remember, I suppose, that if we believe the version of events that is presented to us in the Misty Mountains Cold Song way back at the beginning of the book, and we have, I think, no reason to question that belief, then the dwarves, at least in part, brought this on themselves. But the men of Dale did not. The men of Dale were... 
well, perhaps it's too flippant to describe them as collateral damage, but certainly they were not the target of the dragon. They did not draw the dragon's ire. Apparently, by the time the dragon showed up, the men of Dale and the elves of the wood were still happily coexisting and, and would have continued to happily coexist with the dwarves if the dwarves themselves had not retreated. But we've reached this point now. The dragon is dead. The, the dragon slayer is coming to the Lonely Mountains, seeking restoration, seeking unity once more. This is a good and noble impulse. But Thorin has fallen under the dragon sickness. Thorin is not making the choices that a good king should make. And as we'll see as we move through these chapters tonight, the same may be said for Bard to a certain extent, and Thranduil to a certain extent. I really must stop calling him Thranduil. That is not his name within the span of this book. The Elven King. We could just refer to him as the Elven King. Yes. I, and I too, as, as a couple of you are calling out, yes, I too love the beat before Roak says, I will not say if this council be good or bad, but I will do what can be done. That's demonstrative of enormous loyalty there. Roak is obviously hesitant, but still he is a raven of the Lonely Mountain. And that means that he will follow the orders of, well, the king under the mountain. Now that the dragon is dead, there is no one to contest Thorin's title. And I think that we can attribute this sudden rush of, of dragon sickness to that realization. Now that he knows that Smaug is dead, now that he understands that there is no challenge to his authority, no challenge to his position, now that he understands, crucially, that the immense horde assembled by Smaug is his, Thorin's actions deteriorate, his personality deteriorates rapidly. We go straight from, well, I hope we're going to be okay, let's go out and try and find out what happened to Smaug, to all of this is mine, rally my forces, rally my kinsmen, we are going to fight. That's huge and, and a stark and sudden shift that, to me at least, speaks very eloquently to the effect of the dragon sickness on Thorin. Yes. Um, Stephen asks, this is an interesting question, is it worth asking, would Dale have survived without the dwarves? Um, I mean, yes, in as much as Dale did survive, Esgaroth survived without the dwarves. Esgaroth and, and the, the, the woodland realm of the elves seem to still have a somewhat symbiotic relationship. We have the trading of goods between the two. We learned earlier that the dwarves never bothered to farm or hunt for food because they never needed to. They could trade for what they wanted. So we could speculate perhaps about the influx of, of gems and gold and riches into Dale and, and into, you know, either directly or by proxy into the woodland realm too. But it's difficult to, to talk about that kind of economic consideration, not least of all because Tolkien didn't care about economics. There's, there's almost no mention made in, in any of his pieces about economics, about the functioning of society on that level, in those terms. He, he was completely disinterested in that. So it's, it's a little difficult to be sure, but yes, honestly, I would say that um, had Smaug left Dale alone, I mean, Dale's... Pro Proximity, it's, it's immediate and urgent proximity to, to the Lonely Mountain would have made it a ripe target. So there's no way that Smaug would have left it alone. But if some natural disaster had claimed the Dwarven Kingdom, had, had rent the Lonely Mountain in twain and simply destroyed Erebor, Dale would probably have been fine. As a culture, as a community, it would probably have been fine. And Esgaroth, by all accounts, would probably have been fine 
to Esgaroth, the, 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 the refuge home, Lake Town, the, the, the refuge home of the men of Dale, certainly seems to be flourishing. It's certainly, it's endured for 150 years, so that's not nothing. So, yes, I, I'm not entirely sure about it. I wouldn't really want to make a, make a flat declarative statement about it, but yes. Uh, it Don't Connect asks, is that a microphone on Alistair's shirt being covered up by the microphone? Can you see the irony in this? Yes, I have an old-style radio mic on my shirt. I kind of love this shirt. It's pretty good. Um, Yes. <laughs> Nikki asks, um, uh, this is with regard to Thorin, even though he had no Arkenstone, how does right to throne concerning dwarves work with ravens? This is fascinating and, and almost impossible to completely decipher. It is asserted that the Arkenstone is the heart of the mountain. It is asserted that the Arkenstone is a symbol of dwarven leadership, of dwarven kingship. But the exact mechanics of that are absolutely unclear. It seems as though Thorin is king under the mountain. Right now, as of this moment, with the destruction of Smaug, Erebor is his once more. None of the dwarves in his party certainly question that right. And when Bard and Thranduil show up, they won't question that right either. They will question him in many other ways, but they won't dispute his role as king under the mountain. This is, you know, medieval feudalist divine right of rule stuff. He's the king. And yet we have the leverage applied by the Arkenstone to this notion of, of kinghood, of kingship. So I'm not entirely sure exactly how that works, and it's almost impossible to, to tease apart those threads and to parse exactly what the Arkenstone is within the structure of the book. We kind of have to lean on what the Arkenstone does, the use to which the Arkenstone is put, perhaps, more than its native uh, capabilities to define kingship, its, its native role as a symbol of the kingdom of Erebor itself. And of course, as I discussed last week, just fleetingly, we have to remember that Erebor was in existence when the Arkenstone was found. There was already a dwarven culture here, presumably already a king under the mountain when the Arkenstone was discovered. So it can't speak that directly. But if it is if it is less a, single of, less a symbol of kingship, and this, I think, is where I end up with it, it is less a symbol of kingship and more a symbol of the mountain itself. It's not affirmation of, of Thorin's right to rule. This is not about Thorin being the king under the mountain. This is about the mountain being the kingdom of Erebor. That's, that, to me, is the subtle distinction between those two things that speaks to the, the symbolism, the powerful political and, and potentially, question mark, magical uh, impact of, of the Arkenstone itself. Yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Death or Glory Toad on Twitter says, I would think the Arkenstone is more a token, like a scepter or some such that it is inherent with, but not declarative of kingship. That's absolutely, absolutely possible. Yes. Though the, the, the enthusiasm with which Thorin pursues it I mean, almost does feel suggestive of something greater. If it's not suggestive of something greater, then it is absolutely the case that Thorin has been all but consumed by the, the, the dragon sickness, and it has attached itself specifically to the Arkenstone, that it has become a symbol of, of his enormous need of wealth. Yeah, it's possible. Sure. Uh, let me see. You guys have pushed on so swiftly. Um, uh, yes, Chesley says, the Arkenstone has sentimental and cultural value, but it does not affect the politics of Erebor. Possibly, yes, yes. And, and Haley is looking for clarification here, I think. So Thorin is unquestionably a king in general, but only king of Erebor once he is in possession of the Arkenstone. I think the way that I would, I think the way that I would distill that is that Thorin is the king under the mountain, but Erebor, the kingdom, only is 
truly returned to greatness only really exists again once the the king under the mountain is restored possession of the heart of the mountain. That seems to me to be a, you know, there's a fundamental unity there that we're moving back towards. So yes, yes. Good. Good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate says, I did not take dragon sickness literally at all. I read it as a heavy-handed description of greed and lust for power. That is certainly fair. I'm not sure that that's necessarily untrue in order for the dragon sickness to also be literally true. Um, One of the reasons that we write fantasy fiction, one of the reasons that we write speculative fiction is that it allows us to embody the metaphor. We're allowed to take the metaphorical concept of greed and embody it here in dragon sickness. We're allowed to to make it more specific, to make it more powerful, certainly to make it more potent, to make it more immediate, and then also to resolve it in a more efficient fashion. You know, we, we can have these influences arrive upon our characters and influence their actions and then depart once more. So there's an interesting kind of... Um, the kind of fluidity that is afforded the metaphor by virtue of of the fact that this is a fantasy novel, that, that we invoke dragon sickness because when we talk about greed, what well, we're talking about something that is very complicated and also very mundane. We're talking about, you know, a character flaw. We're talking about a character defect. If we wrap that up with the dragon sickness, then we can still talk about greed and we can talk about its destructive implications and ramifications and we can talk about that at great length, but we can also talk about, well, magic and we can also talk about, you know, the influence of dragons and the influence of great hordes of, of wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Let me see here. I think we're fine for now. Um, Let's push on to our next uh, slide here. And this is effectively the recapitulation of the Misty Mountains Cold song from the beginning of the book, a song that I have repeated time and time again as we've moved through the, or, or referenced, I guess, time and time again as we've moved through this novel. Under the mountain, dark and tall, the king has come unto his hall. His foe is dead, the worm of dread, and ever so his foes shall fall. The sword is sharp, the spear is long, the arrow swift, the gate is strong. The heart is bold that looks on gold. The dwarves no more shall suffer wrong. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. On silver necklaces they strung the light of stars. On crowns they hung the dragon fire from twisted wire. The melody of harps they rung. The mountain throne once more is freed. O wandering folk, the summons heed. Come haste, come haste across the waste. The king of friend and kin has need. Now call we over mountains cold, come back into the caverns old. Here at the gates the king awaits, his hands are rich with gems and gold. The king is come unto his hall, under the mountain dark and tall. The worm of dread is slain and dead, and ever so our foes shall fall. And we're told immediately after the song has been sung that it pleases Thorin mightily, which should really come as no surprise at all, I suspect. So the recapitulation of the Misty Mountains Cold song, there's obviously some interesting uh, poetic and literary technique evidenced here within this poem. I particularly like that penultimate stanza, now call we over mountains cold, come back unto the caverns old. That's a powerful uh, echo of that original song. The, The loneliness and the yearning of that original song now completely overcome by possession by domination by surety and certainty and force of arms 
And again, we see this contrast between the things the dwarves make in the name of beauty, the things the dwarves make in the name of art, and their more militant tendencies, the creation of armor, the creation of weapons. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. We've got this sense now of subterranean industry, of, of life and, and creativity returning to Erebor, but it is not a positive kind of creativity. Here we're seeing the provision of arms and armaments. Here we're seeing the, the provision of spells. And when we're thinking about that, <coughs> excuse me, when we're thinking about that kind of industry, we're reminded, I think, primarily not of the dwarves, but rather of the goblins, that the goblins are darkly industrious in exactly this way, that the goblins create weapons of war, weapons of mass destruction oftentimes. So even here in this recapitulation of the song, which already was, as we discussed so very long ago, a problematic song. There were elements contained within that song that foreshadowed all that would spring from you know, the, the fall of Erebor or even the coming of Smaug. We saw the dwarves turning away from the outside world, becoming insular, becoming greedy, becoming, if you like, afflicted by the dragon sickness. So we've already had some issues with some of the tonality of that poem, but here it is explicit. The sword is sharp, the spear is long, the arrow swift, the gate is strong, the heart is bold that looks on gold. The dwarves no more shall suffer wrong. I mean, that's terrible. That's terrible. Listing armaments as strengths is never going to win you morality points in Middle-earth. That is never going to, to be a sign that you are a good person. But it's the third line, I think, that is most problematic. The heart is bold that looks on gold. Drawing courage from the horde does not suggest that Thorin will be a benevolent king. It does not suggest that this will be a restitution of, of Erebor at its height, but rather Erebor at its fall. The dwarves no more shall suffer wrong. The taking of gold from the mountain is not wrong. The gifting of gold by a benevolent king to friends and to allies and to kinsmen is not wrong. That is not just a good and noble thing, but perhaps the most good and noble thing. It is the most benevolent act of a compassionate ruler. The fact that we are now asserting that that the loss of any single artifact from this horde would be unjust, would be wrong, speaks very powerfully to where Thorin is as the leader of the dwarves and where the company themselves have moved. Um, we get a few hints that, that later in the story, some of the dwarves will be a little ashamed of what they have done. They, they won't necessarily identify with Thorin 100%, but right now, it seems as though they have swung. It seems as though the restoration of their home is not inclining them toward the restoration of the alliance that made that home possible. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, are the goblins, says Sarah Thomas, a warning of what the dwarves might become? Yes, absolutely. I think that's entirely true. I think that, um, well, I, I, perhaps not literally, but certainly the goblins are, are a foreshadowing of what the dwarves may become if they slip to wickedness, if they slip to evil, if they slip to selfishness, if they do not coexist with their neighbors, if they don't even coexist within the, the, the bounds of their own culture, if they are openly hostile and militaristic, if they seek power, 
that's always a bad sign in Tolkien. So yes, I think metaphorically more than literally, the, the, the dwarves will not turn into goblins, literally speaking, if they succumb to even the worst excesses of the dragon sickness, but they will turn into something not entirely dissimilar. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> Chesley Smith says, does giving away gold show benevolence or a wish to cause inflation, good or bad? Again, Tolkien did not care about economics. The giving of gold, the giving of gifts is a metaphorically important quality possessed by the great kings. This is a very medieval idea, again, that, that benevolence is, is one of the things, that, one of the virtues that you would look for in any kind of lord, any kind of ruler, any kind of, of you know, nobleman within the framework of a feudalistic culture. But the king, absolutely, the king must give. And all of these prophecies, of course, have been told of the rivers flowing with gold, that, that, that once more gold and wealth will flow forth from Erebor into Esgaroth, into, into Lake Town, and presumably to the, the elves of the Woodland Realm too. Yeah. Um, okay, now we're... Uh, now the YouTube chat is jumping around, and that just makes it fun. Yes, good. Um, Sabrina says, I wonder if Thorin would be any different if he had possession of the Arkenstone. Maybe he would feel more generous about the rest of it and feel less wronged. Probably not, though. Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think that Thorin has, it would perhaps be articulated differently, and, and perhaps his descent toward the fullest measure of his dragon sickness may take more time, but he has slipped. He has left the path of reason here. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Let me make sure I haven't missed anything else. Excellent. No, we're absolutely fine. Um, good. Let's uh, move on then to uh, to the next slide and, and to basically the end of chapter 15. This is the first parley at the gates of the Lonely Mountain. This is the coming of uh, of Bard to, Esgaroth, uh, to to Erebor here. Let me share the screen. Again, Thorin hailed them in a loud voice. Who are you that come armed for war to the gates of Thorin, son of Thrain, king under the mountain? This time he was answered. A tall man stood forward, dark of hair and grim of face, and he cried, Hail Thorin! Why do you fence yourself like a robber in his hold? We are not yet foes, and we rejoice that you are alive beyond our hope. We came expecting to find none living here, yet now that we are met, there is matter for a parley and a council. Who are you, and of what would you parley? I am Bard, and by my hand was the dragon slain and your treasure delivered. Is it not a matter that concerns you? Moreover, I am by right of descent the heir of Girion of Dale, and in your hoard is mingled much of the wealth of his halls and towns, which of old Smaug stole. Is not that a matter of which we may speak? Further, in his last battle, Smaug destroyed the dwellings of the men of Esgaroth, and I am yet the servant of their master. I would speak for him, and ask whether you have no thought for the sorrow and misery of his people. They aided you in your distress, and in recompense you have thus far brought only ruin, though doubtless undesigned. We immediately have um, this, this essential tension, this essential conflict between Thorin and Bard. It is important to recognize, particularly for modern readers, that Bard is right here. Bard has conventional morality on his side. He is the heir of Girion. He is of the royal line of Dale. He is 
kind of like Thorin was. His home has not been restored and may never yet be restored, but he is still of royal blood and royal lineage. To meet in council, to parley, would be absolutely expected. And yet Thorin is pushing him away. Thorin is questioning his, his intent, is questioning his design here. And Bard, though he is forceful, though he is assertive in this discussion, is also still respectful. He concedes entirely that it wasn't Thorin's plan for Smaug to destroy Esgroth, but nonetheless that has happened, and we rely on your charity, O king under the mountain. We rely on your kindness. The portion of your horde that belongs to me, that's non-negotiable. That is mine, and you are going to give it back to me, and that's just understood. But also, if you could help us out, we don't have a home anymore, and winter is coming on. Thorin, of course is not particularly swayed by that conversation. Yes. Lauren Hasley says, uh, I love that. We don't think you sick the dragon on us on purpose, but you did sick the dragon on us. Yes. <laughs> Bard is simply being practical, says Jackie. They helped you, you stirred up the dragon, you helped them. That seems only fair. And of course, we must remember that, that the dwarves were welcomed into, into Lake Town, that they were given shelter and sustenance and, and were there for weeks at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Shane says, but what about the Elven King? He doesn't seem to have any moral authority here. Well, it is suggested that there are treasures belonging to the Elven King contained within the Horde too, that in this, this mutually beneficial arrangement of these three kingdoms, of these three nations, of these three communities and cultures, that there was a flowing forth of, of goods, of gems, of gold, of, of you know, valuable uh, property. Yeah, it, it's possible, yes. Um, Yes. James says, it strikes me as inflammatory that Bard uses the term yet. We are not foes. Is this dishonorable initiation? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that um, it's certainly forceful. It's certainly forceful, but I don't necessarily believe that, that Bard has any idea that Thorin is going to be as stern and unforgiving as he's going to be. Bard, of course, is a cynic. Bard, of course, is the grim-voiced man. And I think it's important to note, too, that the presence of the Horde is also tugging at Bard, that he is also potentially at least beginning to take a half-step toward the dragon sickness himself. We'll see a little more of that with his interactions with, with Bilbo, yes. Um, <laughs> it Don't Connect says, look, the Elven King needs gold to support his eyebrows. No, no, no. Gold is a very soft metal. I don't think it's up to the job. You need, you need steel to support those eyebrows, some kind of scaffolding framework. Yes. Good. Um, as Dry Heaving Lama says, a truly wise king would offer to split Smaug in half and give one half to Bard. I'm not sure that he would want that necessarily, but sure. Yes. Yes. Good. Okay. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Becca says the elves have to be there for narrative reasons. They do, though it is more than simply applying pressure to the circumstances that, that Thorin is facing. Certainly, one army would be sufficient to tackle the dwarves inside the Lonely Mountain right now. But the presence of the elves does speak to that old coexistence, that old alliance that was so important and will be so important again in the future. Um, 
but yes, and for narrative purpose, and and not merely um, not merely additive conflict. It's not as though the elves only show up to be to to make matters worse, to be further uh, complications in Thorin's plan, because Thranduil is the one that begins to hesitate. Thranduil, in his dealings with Bilbo, does shift in a really interesting direction. So we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it too. Yes, you need an adamantium skeleton for those eyebrows, says Princess Ostrich. I'm beginning to believe that you're right. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Okay, let's uh, let's move on here into the chat into the beginning of chapter sixteen, Thief in the Night, where we refocus the narrative once more on Bilbo Baggins. Now the days passed slowly and wearily. Many of the dwarves spent their time piling and ordering the treasure, and now Thorin spoke of the Arkenstone of Thryon and bade them eagerly to look for it in every corner. For the Arkenstone of my father, he said, is worth more than a river of gold in itself, and to me it is beyond price. That stone of all the treasure I name unto myself, and I will be avenged on anyone who finds it and withholds it. Bilbo heard these words, and he grew afraid, wondering what would happen if the stone was found, wrapped in an old bundle of tattered oddments that he used as a pillow. All the same, he did not speak of it, for as the weariness of the days grew heavier, the beginnings of a plan had come into his little head. It's a very minor point, but I do love the emphasis that the narrator puts on Bilbo's diminutive size and diminutive character, honestly, right there in that last line. The beginnings of a plan had come into his little head. This is not about grandeur for Bilbo. And really, that's the point, I think, of this entire chapter. Bilbo is about to do something heroic. He's about to do something singularly selfless, and he's about to conduct himself with an enormous amount of of honor and dignity. And in so doing, he is going to demonstrate a nigh-perfect unification of the two sides of his character. He is going to be practical. He's going to be pragmatic. He's going to be businesslike with Bard and with the Alvin King, but he has to be there first. He has to somehow find his way to their attention. He has to earn his audience, and he does that through his Tookish nature, through the impulse to adventure. What he does is enormously brave and possibly foolhardy. Certainly, the Elven King thinks that it's pretty foolhardy. We'll get to that in just a moment. But yes, there, there is here... No Took could have accomplished this, for they would have lacked the practicality. A Took at this point would have almost certainly been swept up in the narrative of the adventure. The Took almost certainly would have sided with the dwarves, may even have fallen more deeply under the dragon sickness than, than Bilbo himself did. A Baggins, on the other hand, well, a Baggins wouldn't be here in the first place, but a Baggins also wouldn't be able to manipulate and to lie, to sneak out in the dead of night, and to, to earn entry, to earn the, the, the counsel of both Bard the Dragon Slayer and the Elven King too. So in this moment we're really seeing the reason why Bilbo, specifically Bilbo, the son of Bungo Baggins and Belladonna Took, is the perfect man for this job, is the, 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 the only person who could have accomplished this remarkable task. And here he is. Let's look then at the chapter, at the, the passage, excuse me, of uh, Bilbo slipping away and actually coming upon the enemy camp here as the Lonely Mountain is being besieged. They seized him quickly in spite of their surprise. Who are you? Are you the dwarves, Hobbit? What are you doing? How did you get so far past our sentinels? They asked one after another. 
I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins, he answered. Companion of Thorin, if you want to know. I know your king well by sight, though perhaps he doesn't, want, he doesn't know me to look at. But Bard will remember me, and it is Bard I particularly want to see. Indeed, said they. And what may be your business? Whatever it is, it is my own, my good elves. But if you wish ever to get back to your own woods from this cold, cheerless place, he answered, shivering, you will take me along quick to a fire where I can dry, and then you will let me speak to your chiefs as quick as may be. I have only an hour or two to spare. Introducing himself, of course, using his formal name, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, is absolutely a Baggins-ish note. That is, uh, that is yes, uh, Bungo would be proud of his boy, yes, at, at that point. And we see here, too, Bilbo's desire to push forward bravely, courageously, but to do so in a fairly simple way. For all that he is accomplishing something of vital importance, for all that he will be remembered in the annals of history for his actions here today. Bilbo is still very small. He is still a hobbit. He is still, in this company and in this context, relatively unimportant. So he wants to talk to Bard because he knows Bard. Though, of course, as you may remember, Bard had not really shown up in the chapters in which Bilbo was in Lake Town. Bard wasn't named until later. He hadn't really developed his character until later. But... Uh, but all the same, it is Bilbo's simplicity and his humility that carry him this far. This is, as I've said, the, the sinking, the, the unity of his Baggins nature and, and Turkish nature too. Yes. Good. Um, oh, it don't connect calls out. Interesting that he says company of Thorin and not companion of the, uh, sorry, companion of Thorin and not companion of the dwarves. Yes. I think that may be borrowing a little of Thorin's, uh, Borrowing a little Thorin's authority there. Yes, he's, he's certainly uh, presenting himself as more important. Angela Lurie asks in the YouTube chat, when did Bilbo meet Bard in Lake Town? Yes, as I said, he didn't, but he was there for several weeks and it's entirely possible that they crossed paths at least once. Yes. Excellent. And Errol says, last time Bilbo didn't dry off fast, he got really sick. I can understand why he wants to get dry. I definitely understand that too. Yes, good. Um, <clears throat> Scrolling back a little bit here. Uh, good. Okay. I think we're I think we're pretty good right now. Um, maybe he asked for Bard because of the Raven Rock, says Jackie. Um, huh, interesting. Interesting, maybe, yes. Though again, he's not afraid of asking for the Elven King, who he acknowledges will not recognize him, but he does claim that Bard will know him by sight. So perhaps. Perhaps either is good, yes. Perhaps uh, a little of both, I should say, is, is good, yeah. I'd remember the short guy with hairy feet, too, says it don't connect. Absolutely. <laughs> He's, he would stand out in Lake Town. I think that's pretty fair, yes. And Bilbo was quite famous in Lake Town, says Errol the Young. Bilbo says Bard will recognize him, not the other way around. And that's very true, too, yes. I think that uh, Bilbo's celebrity will, will certainly carry a great deal of weight uh, with Bard, simply because Bard was in Lake Town when Bilbo and the dwarves showed up. So presumably he can verify at the very least that, yes, this is the Hobbit who was with Thorin and company. Yeah, good. Good. Okay. Um, let's look at... The actual, uh, the actual delivery, the, the actual bargaining after Bilbo is taken into the presence of, uh, of the Elven King and Bard, the Dragon Slayer. This is the Arkenstone of Thrain, said Bilbo, the heart of the mountain, and it is also the heart of Thorin. He values it above a river of gold. I give it to you, 
It will aid you in your bargaining. Then Bilbo, not without a shudder, a shudder, not without a glance of longing, handed the marvelous stone to Bard, and he held it in his hand as though dazed. But how is it yours to give? he asked at last with an effort. Oh, well, said the hobbit uncomfortably, it isn't exactly, but, well, I, I am willing to let it stand against all my claim, don't you know? I may be a burglar, or so they say, personally, I never felt like one, but I am an honest one, I hope, more or less. Anyway, I'm going back now, and the dwarves can do what they like to me. I hope you will find it useful. The elven king looked at Bilbo with new wonder. Bilbo Baggins, he said, you are more worthy to wear the armor of elf princes than many that have looked more comely in it. But I wonder if foreign Oakenshield will see it so. I have more knowledge of dwarves in general than you have, perhaps. I advise you to remain with us, and here you shall be honored and thrice welcome. Thank you very much, I'm sure, said Bilbo with a bow. But I don't think I ought to leave my friends like this. After all, we've gone, uh, after all we've gone through together, and I promised to wake old Bomber at midnight too. Really, I must be going in quickly. So a few things here that we want to immediately call out. The first is, of course, Bilbo's desire to return to the dwarves. This is not a betrayal, exactly. This is a pragmatic action taken to forestall the coming war, but Bilbo is more than willing to take responsibility for that action. He is more than willing to, to face the wrath of Thorin as a consequence of the actions that he has taken. That speaks to me very, very well of Bilbo's character, I think. That is an enormously courageous thing to do. And also his personal connection with the other dwarves, his personal connection with his friends, with Bomber in particular, with whom he has that, that rather wonderful scene on the ramparts prior to leaving the Lonely Mountain for, for this meeting right here. Um, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful exploration of Bilbo's character. This is the greatest act of heroism of which Bilbo is capable. We know that he loves the Arkenstone. We know that he was drawn to the Arkenstone, and we talked a little about exactly how that happened last time. But here, as we see in the first paragraph, um, then Bilbo, not without a shudder, a shudder, not without a glance of longing, handed the marvelous stone to Bard, and he held it in his hand as though dazed. Bilbo is well aware that he is giving up his 14th share of the Horde. He has chosen this piece, even though he knows that Thorin didn't intend for the Arkenstone to be counted as a part of the Horde. And now he's surrendering it. He believes at this point, I think, that he will leave the Lonely Mountain, will return home, if indeed he ever returns home, if he ever escapes the wrath of the dwarves, he will return home empty-handed, without anything for all of his labors, for all of his his great and and surprising sometimes heroism. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, Shane says, so he took the stone nervously and almost against his will, he gives it up freely. Yes, not simply perhaps, but certainly freely. And this has to be the the moment at which Bilbo is most resistant or, or most capable of overcoming dragon sickness. This is an active repudiation of, of dragon sickness. As librarian Val says here on Twitter, another example of how wealth means nothing to hobbits. They don't need or want the diamond emoji or the treasure. I guess the diamond emoji is the Arkenstone, and I'm certainly going to be calling it that from now on. I rather like that. Yes. Yes. Good. Um, Yes, Lauren says, I even remember Bilbo thinking that he only wanted the Arkenstone out of all the treasure when he found it. A prophetic thought. Absolutely, yes. Good. 
Um, we're somehow talking about point and click adventure games here in the YouTube chat. Just to scroll back and find out exactly how that began. But uh, <laughs> um, we're talking a little about, uh, yes, yes, the, the I, I cannot find the, the, the root, I cannot find the origin of this conversation, but I do very much like that we're discussing uh, old point-and-click adventure games. We're, we're specifically calling out, Gene is specifically calling out Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion. Yes, good, good. <laughs> the LucasArts adventure games, guys, they were the best. They were just the best. I love those games. I think I, I have played all of them. I mean, I have I have spent more hours in Monkey Island than I can tell you about. Uh, Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle are fantastic. Uh, Full Throttle is a really interesting game. Grim Fandango is one of the greatest stories ever told. I adore, adore the LucasArts point-and-click adventure game, Grim Fandango. Yes. Good. All right. Let's... Um... <laughs> Oh, we're talking about the Hobbit adventure game, I guess. Is that what we're talking about? Perhaps. All right. I'm not going to pay attention to, to discussion of point-and-click adventure games. That is not why we're here. I will launch a podcast in which I can discuss that myself someday. Let me put back up this slide because I want to pay very close attention to uh, to the third paragraph here where Bilbo, sa Bilbo says, excuse me, Oh, well, said the Hobbit uncomfortably, it isn't exactly, but, well, I'm willing to let it stand against all my claim, don't you know? I may be a burglar, or so they say. Personally, I never really felt like one, but I am an honest one, I hope, more or less. Anyway, I'm going back now, and the dwarves can do what they like to me. I hope you will find it useful. I may be a burglar. We've looked at some of the other potential inconsistencies here, some of the other paradoxical elements of Bilbo's character and, and certainly actions here. Um, oh, you were talking about Thimbleweed Park. Okay. Yes, I missed that. No, don't apologize at all. I hear great things. I'm going to play it too at some point. Um, but Bilbo says here, I may be a burglar or, or so they say. Personally, I never really felt like one, but I am an honest one, I hope, more or less. The paradox of the honest burglar, the paradox of the thief who steals great riches, the greatest treasure by all accounts. The Arkenstone is unparalleled. The, the, there is conceivably no greater artifact in the entire world than the Arkenstone. If we're excluding things about which we will learn more in The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo's desire for the Arkenstone has now been overcome and he is giving it away to prevent conflict and expecting no recompense, expecting no restitution for this act of, of absolute gallantry and, and, and heroism. This is the paradox at the heart of, of Bilbo's role as burglar and is also, I think, somewhat emblematic of that essential conflict between Took and Baggins. That, that Bilbo is two things which are mutually incompatible, but he is them simultaneously. He is a walking paradox, a walking contradiction. And here the idea of an honest burglar kind of embodies that same spirit. He, it kind of embodies that same, that same internal tension, that internal dynamism between those two opposed and, and contradictory forces. So this does speak to me of Bilbo's essential character, certainly, and speaks to me of that essential division within him and his ability to unify these contrary things. His ability to unify these contradictory things is, of course, what makes Bilbo so truly special. He's not special because he's Baggins and because he's Took. He's special because he is Baggins and Took. He's special because he is both honest and a burglar. Only, only those two things coexisting within the same person could have, have brought us to this point, could have brought us to this turn of events. So he is both of these things, these contradictory things, but he is them at once. And our 
absolute refusal within the narrative to allow Bilbo to be simplified down, to allow him to be to be collapsed down into a single version of himself is why I think Bilbo's art through the story works as well as it does. Yes. Yeah. Only a hobbit, says Joshua 13, could be an honest burglar. Perhaps. Yes. Good. Good. <laughs> yes. As Jackie says, he knows there will be consequences when he gets back. The dwarves will find out that Bilbo gave up the Arkenstone eventually. Yes, they will. We'll see how that plays out in just a moment. Yeah. Yeah. As, as Joshram says, gets an amazingly wealthy object and just gives it away to stave off war. It is why I love hobbits. Good. Right, because of course, as we've said before, greed within the pages of, of Tolkien's work is always a terrible sign. Nothing good comes of greed at all. The desire to acquire, the desire to possess, these are always negative, particularly the desire to, to acquire and possess in abundance, the desire to, to demonstrate or to prove or to wield power through the accumulation of wealth is is not good i mean is specifically draconic is specifically you know related to smaug and 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 the devastation around the lonely mountain the opposite of that though the giving of the gift the giving of of something that is needed particularly in the service of people for whom you have taken some kind of responsibility when i was talking about uh about Bard's expectation of Thorin's magnanimity, you know, that, that good kings are free with their, with their charity and with their, their service. Bilbo here is demonstrating exactly that quality at just the time that Thorin is at his furthest point from it. Yeah. Good. As Errol says here, hobbits care about food, family, and relaxing. Nothing else matters to them, really, in general. That is certainly, yes. And, and as Cedar Height says, hobbits like to pass on gifts. They do not hoard. Of course, we'll be talking about that uh, early in the Fellowship of the Ring. Yes. Good. Good. Princess Ostrich says there needs to be at least a Hitchhiker one-shot discussion at one point. Are we talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Because I am in for that. Uh, I could definitely talk about that. Yes. Good. Um, Narani, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, says, can greed and ambition be seen in the same way? And yes, I think so. Not, not superficially, perhaps, not literally, perhaps, but in the sense that both greed and ambition, at their worst, at their most destructive within, within the stories told by J.R.R. Tolkien, they serve the same purpose, which is the accumulation and the exercise of power. Power is always dangerous, whether it is given or granted or earned Power will always corrupt. Great men fall. That is the essential lesson. That is the essential moral lesson that we can take from pretty much all of Tolkien's work. Great men fall. And the greater you are, the harder your fall. Bilbo, though, is not a great man. Bilbo is just a small hobbit from far away. Bilbo is able to elude these things by virtue not of his greatness, but of his goodness. And those are two oftentimes conflated impulses, or oftentimes in, in inflated virtues, I suppose, but not in this particular case. Bilbo has accomplished through his goodness what the great could not. And that's absolutely indicative of, of hobbits and why we love Bilbo as much as we do. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. 
Yes. Yes. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. We will, we will do something on Hitchhikers at some point. I'm, I'm a colossal Douglas Adams fan. I have read, I think, pretty much everything the man wrote during his long and storied career. So I would love to talk about, maybe I could just do a Douglas Adams one shot. I think maybe, maybe focusing on the man himself rather than a, a particular piece of his work. Because if I sit down to talk about Hitchhiker, I'm going to want to talk about Dirk Gently. I'm going to want to talk about some of the other things that Douglas Adams wrote. So certainly that's, uh, yeah, that's a little tricky. Yeah. Good. Yes. And Nikki says, what about Aragorn then? Well, Aragorn is special because Aragorn, while he is great, he demonstrates the absolute virtues of kingship. He demonstrates generosity and humility and condescension. Aragorn is the absolute role model. He is the apotheosis of the, the servant king. He would have been a, a mythic figure in medieval times because of that ability to, to rule, to embody absolute authority. Yes, he is the king and no one else gets to be king. It is just him. But also he is giving and kind and, and doesn't seek to accumulate more power than the power that he has been given. He has had power thrust upon him, if you will, and he's not looking for conquest in that. So the, the accumulation is a little, a little harder. Yeah. Good. As Haley said, <clears throat> excuse me, as Haley says here, being good versus being great, when do the two overlap? Rarely in Tolkien's world. Um, very rarely, very rarely. Um, off the top of my head, I can think of Aragorn. I can think of Faramir. Certainly Faramir is a great example of, of someone who is both great and good. Uh, Elrond pretty much dodges a bullet uh, throughout both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, so that's possible too. Not, not many more, not many more past that. Gandalf, of course, I think we can probably count too, but uh, yes, yes. Good. Okay, let's see here. Oh, no, uh, Narnia, I guess, is I'll pronounce it here. Uh, please feel free to say Narnia, closer pronunciation of my name. She says, excellent. Uh, also, my stream cut off just as you were answering my question. I can only apologize. The YouTube version will be available after the fact. You should hopefully be able to go back and find it there. If not, the podcast version will be available uh, probably later this evening. I'll just... Uh, just just take the audio and upload it and do the thing that I do now that I have slain all the technical dragons that have so so egregiously beset uh, my efforts here this week. It's just been a really, a really tough week. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's interesting to note, though, that um, that we're, we're calling out here Aragorn and Faramir, absolutely. And, and Nikki says Gandalf is another exception, so he isn't a king. He's not, but his position in... His position in in what we can describe most generally as you know the culture of Middle Earth isn't entirely dissimilar. He belongs to a different archetype, certainly, but his greatness and his goodness are are still compatible in that sense. Yeah, good, good. Um, that's interesting. James says Samwise, good by nature, great by the defeat of Shelob. No. No, Sam is not great. Sam is good. Sam is the best of us. Sam is a hero beyond measure, but Sam is specifically a hero because he is not great. He does accomplish great things, but he never draws that greatness back into himself, as we will discuss at length right at the end of The Return of the King. Sam's greatest and most enduring virtue is that humility. It is that, that contentment. He knows where he belongs. He knows who he is. And that gives him an enormous strength and capability, an enormous fortitude. Yeah. Yeah. As Haley says, I don't think Sam would ever consider himself great. No. Which is one of the things I would argue that makes him so good. Right. 
Yes, as, as the Ocean Palace says, the Smaug was slain, but we have more dragons, technical dragons. Yes, I myself stepped up like a bard with the Black Arrow today. I, uh, I shattered a technical dragon and sent it hurling into the depths of the digital uh, lake and uh, managed to get everything back under control. If you have been waiting for the live seminar session on American Gods, which was supposed to take place on Tuesday, was rescheduled to Wednesday because of technical troubles and then had to be canceled again yesterday. It is now going to take place tomorrow afternoon. I'll do a quick gloss of tomorrow's plans uh, because I'm doing two live shows tomorrow. But I think at, uh, hmm, what did I say, 4 p.m. Eastern? I think, yes, 4 p.m. Eastern tomorrow we're going to do American Gods. It's the first two chapters of American Gods. It's the first, uh, I also have a podcast feed now for Storms on the Way and American Gods podcast. So all of that is in place. If you really like hearing me talk about stories, you'll have another opportunity to do so tomorrow. It's going to be really interesting talking about American Gods, not least of all because it is the first uh, necessarily R-rated seminar that I've ever run. I'm going to need to include a disclaimer at the beginning saying... A lot of people like listening to the Harry Potter seminar or the Pride and Prejudice seminar or, hey, the Tolkien seminar. Don't listen to American Gods with your kids. Don't listen to Storms on the Way. Uh, it's it's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's going to be uh, a bracing and, and challenging discussion, I think, particularly the first two chapters. So I hope you'll be able to join me tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern for that. Okay. Yes. Errol Young says and puts it, Perfectly, perfectly. When Sam was tempted by the ring to become great, he decided that being a simple gardener was better. Good. I couldn't agree more. Okay. Let's stop talking about American Gods and stop talking about Samwise Gamgee, who we won't meet for a few more weeks. And then instead keep pushing on because I still have a bunch of slides to get to. Um, let me see. So this is the, uh, this is the, um, Good. This is that's that's the conclusion of A Thief in the Night. And and as I've said, I've talked at length about Bilbo's heroism, about that unity between the Took and Baggins sides, about this moment of of absolute selflessness, and about his nobility of spirit, that he will return to the dwarves because he has pledged them his support, because they are, even though they don't always think so though his community, he is not going to run out on that responsibility. He is going to face the music, which is I mean, a damnably heroic thing to do. Let's move on then into chapter 17, The Clouds Burst, and begin by discussing the moment of revelation, our second parley here. Thorin at length broke the silence, and his voice was thick with wrath. That stone was my father's and is mine, he said. Why should I purchase my own? But wonder overcame him, and he added, But how came you by the heirloom of my house? If it is need to ask such a question of thieves... We are not thieves, Bard, Bard answered. Your own we will give back in return for our own. How came you by it? shouted Thorin in a gathering rage. I gave it to them, squeaked Bilbo, who was peering over the wall by now in a dreadful fright. You, you, cried Thorin, turning upon him and grasping him with both hands. You miserable hobbit, you undersized burglar. He shouted at a loss for words and he shook poor Bilbo like a rabbit. By the beard of Durin, I wish I had Gandalf here. Curse him for his choice of you. May his beard wither. And as for you, I will throw you to the rocks, he cried, and lifted Bilbo in his arms. This is the moment when Gandalf returns. You guys? He doesn't play a great role in the proceedings, it's pretty fair to say. He does get a very touching moment with Bilbo, where he recognizes that 
his choice of, of the right burglar for this undertaking was perhaps even more fortuitous than he himself understood at the time. Even Gandalf, it seems, can be caught up in, in a wind of good fortune, can be buoyed along a sea of catastrophe. But Gandalf's return is absolutely overshadowed by the wrath of Thorin Oakenshield. And it is absolutely to Bilbo's credit here, I think, that he admits the truth. I think it's absolutely to Bilbo's credit that he, uh, that he confesses and then ultimately is cast forth. It's not an easy thing for him to, to face, for him to endure, but he still tries to build the peace. He still tries to prevent the coming conflict, even in the face of Thorin's unaccountable wrath. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I just realized that it is almost a quarter after nine here in Oklahoma City, and I have a hard out at 9.30, so we are probably going to have to pick up the pace here a little bit to cover the Battle of Five Armies, which inevitably means, of course, that what I'm going to do is gloss it right now and probably return to it in a little more depth on Sunday, because I have to be done by 9.30. So let's push on to uh, to what is effectively the brink of war. From here, the situation deteriorates still further. Bard has his, arm, uh, his army. The Elven King has his. And here, here in the shadow of the Lonely Mountain, battle is about to begin. War is about to begin. The peace that existed in this land for so long is about to be shattered forever. Fools, laughed Bard, to come thus beneath, excuse me, to come thus beneath the mountain's arm. They do not understand war above ground, whatever they know of battles in the mines. There are many of our archers and spearmen now hidden in the rocks upon their right flank. Dwarf mail may be good, but they will soon be set on them now from both sides before they are fully rested. But the elven king said, long will I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. The dwarves cannot pass us unless we will or do anything that we cannot mark. Let us hope still for something that will bring reconciliation. Our advantage in numbers will be enough if, in the end, it must come to unhappy blows. But he reckoned without the dwarves. The knowledge that the Arkenstone was in the hands of the besiegers burned in their thoughts. Also, they guessed the hesitation of Bard and his friends and resolved to strike while they debated. Suddenly, without a signal, they sprang, they sprang silently forward to attack. Bows twanged and arrows whistled. Battle was about to be joined. So the dwarves of... Uh, of the Iron Hills, the, the dwarves of Dain have now arrived. Bard urges a premature strike, urges uh, uh, an exercise of, of tact a tactical superiority over the dwarves, though I'm not entirely sure that I buy the dwarves would, would fall so readily into a trap. I wonder if there was some kind of, of, of strategy here that the dwarves are exercising that would perhaps elude the trap that Bard is about to spring, because the dwarves, while, yes, they are accustomed to fighting underground, have also fought many, many wars. So they're, they're presumably at least, at least nominally familiar with, with strategy on the surface. But here we see the beginning of the crack. Here we see the hesitation of the Alvin King. Long will I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. He came here in part for gold. He came here in part to secure Erebor, to confirm the truth, to learn all that there could be to learn. But now, faced with the possibility of actual open conflict between dwarves and men and elves, he hesitates. And as Nikki calls out in the YouTube chat, finally, Thranduil is acting like an elf lord should. Yes. Yes. And as Chesley says, it was at this point that I did the math and realized we don't have five armies yet. No, currently we are running at three. That's three armies, elves, dwarves, and men. Yes. Good. Good. 
So let's get to it because this is the moment. We've talked about eucatastrophe from the very beginning of the book. We have talked about these, these moments of, of the, the intercession of grace. We've talked about revelatory intercessions of grace. We have talked about moments in which utter disaster is avoided by luck, is avoided by the emergence of, of some apparently terrible thing, which is turned in the end to, to good effect. There is no greater example of this. I, I would actually argue we're going to cover two more examples of eucatastrophe, two uh, probably the most famous examples of eucatastrophe before the end of tonight's reading. That's how fast we're going to get through these. But I would argue that the most famous example of eucatastrophe, the coming of the eagles, is overshadowed by the enormity of the emergence of the goblins, the arrival of the goblin army. I should say, too, the goblin army and the warg army. Two armies, five armies in total, the Battle of the Five Armies, yes. It was made clear back in Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, after the dwarves and Bilbo had escaped from the Misty Mountains, that the wargs are a force unto themselves. They are, they are a, a culture, a community, an army uh, unto themselves. They are working with the goblins, but they are not synonymous. Thus, we have dwarves, elves, men, goblins, and wargs. Those are the five armies, yes. The eagles not counted as an army, I guess. Just an, an intercessionary force, just just more eucatastrophe, pile up eucatastrophe. And obviously, the reason that the coming of the goblins is eucatastrophic is simply that, under any other circumstance, the arrival of a giant army of goblins would be pretty bad news. That is likely to ruin your day. Even if your day is already pretty terrible, it is not going to be improved by the coming of a giant goblin army. Except in this very specific circumstance. If the goblins had been delayed, if they had shown up 12 hours later, they could have fallen upon the Lonely Mountain basically without opposition. Because by that point, the elves and men would have slaughtered each other, and the elves, uh, sorry, the, the dwarves and men would have slaughtered each other, and the elves would either have had to take sides or retreat from the field of battle. This is the moment, the moment when the goblins can arrive and the tide can be turned. Suddenly we can find new unity. Suddenly the prophecies that we have heard so much about will, will actually begin to be enacted and begin to be enacted through Bilbo. Through He, he is the agent of prophecy throughout all of this, thanks to the, the intercession of, of eucatastrophe here. Yes, yes, good. Eucatastrophe says it don't connect. This is the best catastrophe. I'm inclined to agree. Yes, good, good, okay. Um, Oh, there's some talk here about dark elves. That's really interesting. Yes, yes. Uh, the exact uh, taxonomy of elves is really complicated. It's really, really super complicated. Yes, technically there are two kinds of elves, the Kalaquendi and the Moraquendi, the light elves and dark elves. That is not, if you've come up in, in fantasy through Dungeons and Dragons or through through Dragonlance or whatever, your association with Dark Elf is going to be different. It, it's not that that's not what it means. The Light Elves have beheld the light of Valinor. The Dark Elves haven't. Each of those those communities have numerous subcultures within them. So we'll maybe talk a little about that when we get to uh, maybe when we get to Rivendell. Maybe when we get to Rivendell. Maybe when we get to Lothlorien. Actually, we might have an opportunity to talk a little about that because there are. Some, some very subtle uh, indications buried in the text when you get to Lorien, which it, it is interesting to tease out, even if not necessarily narratively or, or dramatically fulfilling. Yes, yes, good. Okay, let's, um, let's keep pushing on because I really do have to, to, to finish this up. 
This is the aforementioned intercession of the goblins. This is the moment where Eucatastrophe turns. Halt! cried Gandalf, who appeared suddenly and stood alone with arms uplifted between the advancing dwarves and the ranks awaiting them. Halt! he called in a voice like thunder, and his staff blazed forth with a flash like the lightning. Dread has come upon you all. Alas, it has come more swiftly than I guessed. The goblins are upon you. Bolg of the North is coming, Odion, whose father you slew in Moria. Behold, the bats are above his army like a sea of locusts. They ride upon wolves and wargs are in their train. Amazement and confusion fell upon them all. Even as Gandalf had been speaking, the darkness grew. The dwarves halted and gazed at the sky. The elves cried out with many voices. Come, called Gandalf. There is yet time for counsel. Let Dian, son of Nine, come swiftly to us. So began a battle that none had expected. And it was called the Battle of Five Armies. And it was very terrible. Upon one side were the goblins and the wild wolves. And upon the other were the elves and men and dwarves. This is how it fell out. Ever since the fall of the great goblin of the Misty Mountains, the hatred of their race for the dwarves had been rekindled to fury. And then we have to move into a brief description of all the other reasons why the goblins are now attacking. All of that is to say, the reason that I included that last little reference, and I couldn't fit the rest of it on a single slide, and I didn't want to break it over two slides, but I wanted to include a little bit of the history here. I wanted to, to note and this is very, very powerful. This is very, very important that eucatastrophe isn't necessarily unprompted. It isn't necessarily unmotivated. It can be so. The intercession of the eagles isn't terribly well motivated, but certainly this is completely narratively consistent. The, the eucatastrophic elements within the arrival of the goblin army and the, the beginning of the battle of five armies rather than the infinitely more catastrophic battle of the three armies the eucatastrophic the elements here are to do with time, to do with place. It's the specific arrival of the goblin army right now that makes it eucatastrophic. The fact that the goblins are mobilized, the fact that the goblins and the wargs are coming to the dwarves is not unmotivated. That actually makes a lot of sense. We get a brief overview of some of the reasons here. So we get we get really the best kind of eucatastrophe where it is motivated and still in its specific application, in its specific example, grace. It is still proof, if you will, of, of Tolkien's theological underpinning here. It is proof that, that in the darkness, a light will shine. And actually that's um, the next little beat that I want to cover here because uh, I don't have the first Ah, I don't have the first. That's unfortunate. There is a really interesting three-beat contained within the, the closing pages of this chapter. Um, and it, it is basically the repetition of the words gloom and gleam. Those words are used three times together in quick succession. The first is describing the elven spearmen. They are like a gleam in... The, their, their blades gleam in the gloom. Then, well, let's read, Tolk, uh, let's read Thorin sallying forth. Day drew on. The goblins gathered again in the valley. There a host of wargs came ravening, and with them came the bodyguard of Bolg, goblins of huge size with scimitars of steel. Soon actual darkness was coming into a stormy sky, while still the great bats swirled about the heads and ears of elves and men or fastened vampire-like on the stricken. Now Bard was fighting to defend the eastern spur, and yet giving slowly back. And the elf lords were at bay about their king upon the southern arm, near to the watchpost on Raven Hill. 
Suddenly there was a great shout, and from the gate came a trumpet call. They had forgotten Thorin. Part of the wall, moved by levers, fell outward with a crash into the pool. Out leapt the king under the mountain, and his companions followed him. Hood and cloak were gone. They were in shining armor, and red light leapt from their eyes. In the gloom, the, the, ah, in the, gloom, the great dwarf gleamed like gold in a dying fire. Rocks were hurled down from on high by the goblins above, but they held on, leapt down to the fall's foot, and rushed forward to battle. Wolf and rider fell or fled before them. Thorin wielded his axe with mighty strokes, and nothing seemed to harm him. To me, to me, elves and men, to me, oh my kinsfolk, he cried, and his voice shook like a horn in the valley. We're going to talk about Thorin's final resolution on Sunday, I guess, in, in the final reading of The Hobbit. And I don't want to preempt that discussion too much, but it is absolutely vital that we note what is happening here. The coming of the Goblin Army, the, the beginning of the Battle of Five Armies, has erased, has destroyed, has eclipsed the dragon sickness. We saw that already because Bard seemed to have stopped suffering from it and Thranduil seemed to have stopped suffering from it, excuse me, when they have counsel with Dian and the dwarves of the Iron Hills. But now Thorin himself has been shaken free of the dragon sickness. He has been reminded of his own greatness. He has been reminded of his own kingship. He rides forth heroically, calling to him not just his kinsfolk, not just the dwarves of the Iron Hills, but also, but first, elves and men, and they respond. This is operatic in its heroism. This is an absolutely beautiful moment that, that is echoed out through the Lord of the Rings too. It's, uh, it's an enormously powerful moment, and I get, I get shaken by it every time. Uh, Sarah Thomas is asking here, does vampire-like seem out of place? Um, there, there are a few questions that we have to answer about Tolkien's works. Uh, do Balrogs have wings, for example? Why don't the eagles just fly Frodo to Mordor? And so on and so forth. And, and almost all of these questions have fairly trivial, fairly straightforward answers here. One of those questions is, are the bats accompanying the goblin army vampire bats? And they are not. They are not vampire bats. They are regular bats who, who consume blood, but they are not... Um, how can I put this? They are not. Um, <laughs> they are not vampires. I'll, I'll put it that way. They, they are. They are vampire bats in the sense that they suck blood. In the sense that they are 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 uh, are, are prone to to attacking and feeding in, in exactly that fashion. But there are not vampires accompanying the uh, accompanying the army here. Yes. Okay. And wow, just just really running out of time here, guys. Just really running out of time. So we're going to get to the last moment of you catastrophe. Then I am out, and we will be able to talk a little more about all of these things on Sunday. If you have questions, you can uh, get them to me. You can email uh, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter. Just use the, hash, the hashtag T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, Tabagan, and I will see that. And then we can have a, a deeper conversation about all of this. But yes, I'm up against the clock, and we have to get to you catastrophe. The clouds were torn by the wind and a red sunset slashed the west, seeing the sudden gleam in the gloom. Bilbo looked around. He gave a great cry. He has seen a sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, small yet majestic against the distant glow. The eagles! The eagles! He shouted. The eagles are coming! Bilbo's eyes were seldom wrong. The eagles were coming down the wind, line after line, and such a host as must have gathered from all the iries of the north. The eagles, the eagles, Bilbo cried, dancing and waving his arms. If the elves could not see him, they could hear him. 
Soon they too took up the cry, and it echoed across the valley. Many wondering eyes looked up, though as yet nothing could be seen except from the southern shoulders of the mountain. The eagles! cried Bilbo once more. But at that moment, a stone hurtling from above smote heavily on his helm, and he fell with a crash and knew no more. Yes, the, uh, the rather lovely intercession of the eagles, the arrival of the eagles, one of the classic examples of eucatastrophe. Let's talk about all of this, I think, a little more uh, thoroughly on Sunday. I really do have to wrap up. I'm going to move on, in fact, to the very last slide here. The next session, The Hobbit, chapters 18 and 19, The Return Journey, and the last stage, 9 p.m. Eastern, Sunday, April 9th. 2017. That is in three days' time. I do hope that you will be able to join me. I hope that we will be able to discuss the end of the book. And as I said, then we'll do some kind of wrap-up, uh, some kind of wrap-up one-shot discussion. It'll be a week out. We'll talk about uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about the Quest of Erebor. We'll talk about the Hobbit in general, and we'll also do a little Q and A. If you guys have any questions about the Hobbit, uh, and then we can. Uh, Draw breath and move into The Fellowship of the Ring. I really can't wait to talk about that book with you all. I have loved talking about this book with you all so far, as I'm sure that you can, uh, as I'm sure that you can tell. You can pledge your support and you can help me do more of the work that I do over at Point North Media by heading on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. The next milestone that we are we are moving toward with great purpose and, and, and great determination is the $1,500 milestone. When I hit that, I immediately launch a short-form seminar series on The Princess Bride, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite movies. I'm thinking right now that I'm going to do four sessions on the book and maybe two more on the movie. I can't wait to talk about The Princess Bride. It is fantastic. And the two texts are so very different that that we'll be able to have a really interesting set of conversations, really, about... Uh, about storytelling and about narrative. The, 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 these are stories about stories in a really fundamental way, and I just love them. So please head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledge your support a dollar a month or whatever you can afford. Though if you pledge at the $5 level, I will send you a postcard with something on it every month. I will send you something pithy, something wise, something insightful, something inspirational. I'll send you some etymology. I'll send you a Tolkien quote. Who can say? I'm going to send things out every month if you support at the $5 a month level or more. Patreon.com slash Point North Media. Guys, thank you all so much for your support. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight. I'm sorry that the ending of tonight's session is a little rushed, but I will talk to you in three days' time. Sunday evening, we will have a conversation about the end of The Hobbit. I can't wait. Guys, I appreciate your time. I'll talk to you all soon. Until then, take care.